Welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Mala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions uh, to Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's uh, my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and nowadays I keep seeing him on CNBC and Fox Business and other news outlets. Uh, he's, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome Ray Wong to our third year anniversary show of Disrupt TV. Hey, happy anniversary, Vala. I'm here with my awesome co-host. He's the chief uh, digital evangelist at Salesforce, one of the top followers for CIOs and CMOs around the world, an author himself, and my co-host for 310 unique guests, according to Aubrey, our producer. Uh, so we're here to celebrate our anniversary show with three very, very special people, people that have been on the show in the past, and more importantly, insights that we want to come back to all the time. So who do we have to kick this off? Uh, what do we start with, Vala? Sure, sure. Well, the first time I've met uh, our first guest is in person was when I visited the Harvard University campus where she was the first chief digital officer, not just for Harvard, but I believe all colleges and universities in the US. So our first guest is Perry Hewitt, a marketeer, a digital strategist, a board member, and a, and a visionary. Perry works uh, at the intersection of marketing and digital strategy. And she's super passionate about leading high performing teams to drive sustainable change and impact. Perry's focus is on bringing modern marketing to a mission driven organization. As I follow Perry's career, it's always the common theme is mission, mission purpose organizations. Uh, current and past clients include the Rockefeller Foundation, Lincoln Center for Performing Arts, the Balmer Group, uh, Perry's background spans not just enterprise, but also nonprofit startups and agency roles. When I met her as Harvard University's Chief Digital Officer, Perry uh, conceived and led digital strategy for marketing, communication, and engagement. A, an amazing rebranding of the website, the mobile app, the, the data and advanced analytics, all of the things that you expect from a pioneer Chief Digital Officer. Uh, she writes, speaks on topics including digital transformation, product management, marketing, and women's leadership. Perry has incredible technical chops, as I learned firsthand. She's an incredible follow on Twitter at P-E-R-R-Y-H-E-W-I-T-T. -T. Welcome back, Perry, to Disrupt TV. Thanks so much. You should have led with that. I mean, Disrupt TV appearances, I think, is definitely the career highlight. You guys have been <laughs> terrific, and it's always a pleasure to see you both. Thank you so much. It was almost two years ago to the date when you came. I know. Really, that was uh, newly really, in New York then, working with Ithaca, which was doing right. amazing sort of digital innovation in higher ed. It was it was a great run. Absolutely. Wow. Well, this is awesome. I recently caught up with you in New York at the uh, Harvard Club. Thank you for a wonderful lunch. And we talked about a lot of different things, right? One of them was really, what is this intersection between marketing, product development, and design? It's like it's all morphing. It's all getting specialized at the same time. So love to hear your thoughts about that shift and, and some of the trends that are happening in that market. You know, we live in such a messy world now, right? Before we had this clean baton-like handoff. You know, one sprinter runs down, you know, in product and then hands the baton. And traditionally, it was like the male product managers back when I was working at Lotus and, you know, hand it to, you know, men and women, but a lot of women in marketing. And now, you know, 
we built the thing, now you go tell the story. And it was these two very different competencies. And it was very comforting to be inside an organization for that. Because if there was a bug, it was the product person's fault. And if the marketing didn't hit right, it was the marketing person's fault. There was a little bit of mesh in the middle, but internally, right, that was a nice way to be organized around software development delivery. But now guess what? We're in a really messy middle where people have to collaborate in whole new ways. And I feel like marketers, it's incumbent upon successful, whether you're a CMO or marketing ops professional, to really understand the product, a brand person, and to get your hands dirty. And product managers need to collaborate a lot more and see how marketing can power customer interaction at scale. Now that product people are talking to customers more and more, which I think is a wonderful development that should not be owned by marketing, they need to think about how do you partner with marketing to really get insights at scale and not sort of go from user research to large you know, market-based inferences. So I think we're learning to play together in the sandbox. It's not always pretty, but it's forward momentum. But I kind of miss, before, before Vala jumps in, I kind of miss the days of waterfall, right? The product manager's done, you throw the requirements over development, I know. the conferences, you talk to people, now nobody has any time, right? It's like, they just throw it back at you, so. Yeah, and you got all these inputs right now, you're just like, oh, I know I talked to Ray, was it text, was it Slack, <laughs> was it, you know, was it on Disrupt TV, right? You know, you do have all these inputs, so I think we're in that sort of like coming out of the cocoon phase where we're trying to figure out how do we manage all this different stuff? You know, how do we manage all these inputs and do it well? And I don't think they're solved problems, but I think they're headed in the right direction. Sure. I like the messy middle description. Of it, it, it's the velocity of change, both speed and direction is such that, you know, you have to have that beginner's mindset. You have to be adaptive. You have to be collaborative. You have to leave your ego at home. There's so many things you got to do to, to compete and win in this hyper-competitive uh, world. And Ray and I did a number of live shows from the World Economic Forum at Davos. Ray was at Davos, and he had an opportunity to bring some extraordinary thought leaders in the venture capital space, in the startup space, in the big company space um, uh, while he was at Davos. And, and there was a lot of talk about technology, which you would expect. Of course, I think this year there was more talk about the environment, what they dubbed globalization 4.0 as the theme and how do companies and organizations compete in the fourth industrial revolution. But there was still a lot of talk about technologies. And, and you are a technologist, Perry, and you've had several roles uh, and responsibilities from digital officer to marketing officer to really guiding IT organizations as they build their development thesis. What are some of the technologies that we should be optimistic about because frankly, the Davos highlighted some, you know, some some areas of concern in terms of right. I mean, equality, climate, uh, social yeah. impact. Given the latest rhetoric that we hear, so what are some technologies that should uh, should bring optimism and hope for business leaders such as yourself? Look, it's really easy to go to this dystopian future of cybersecurity and data privacy and surveillance and all the issues. And these are real hard issues. And I would say the first big advance I'd point to isn't necessarily technology itself, but the fact that that's now a conversation, not a conversation on, you know, uh, Stack Overflow or message boards. It's a conversation in the common, you know, I think a common refrain in, you know, early 2000s around privacy, you know, or, or the rise of Facebook when it went, you know, to the common person in the mid 2000s was, well, I have nothing to hide. Why do I care about privacy? And I think that dialogue has really shifted. So that's one thing I'm very optimistic about is the nature of discourse about technology and thinking about the impact of its role. 
I would say second huge uh, area for growth is the, the merging of large, the collaborations among private and public institutions around things like large scale data sets that are now through machine learning and AI, people are really able to learn, infer and apply global solutions to that. So the whole data for good movement, recently I know that um, MasterCard and the Rockefeller Foundation collaborated on a investment in data kind to really help bring developers from all over the world in order to help advance through these large public private data sets. And I think you're gonna see a lot more of that, of public and private companies coming together you know, to align their data and really make the way for measurable impact. And the third thing, which, you know, this is like Coles to Newcastle telling something about CES to Ray, but, you know, I think it's 5G. You know, I think at CES, was like waiting for Godot this year, right? Everyone was like, 5G, 5G, <laughs> but where is it, right? Like, it's like the thing that's coming, but no one quite knows when. Um, but I do think these kinds of bandwidth shifts, and this is someone whose corporation paid for her to get a T1 line in her house in the early 2000s, right? So you, we remember, you know, the, the impact of those bandwidth shifts. And I think 5G is going to be a big one and going to elicit behaviors that we can't begin to imagine what they are yet. Absolutely. At, at, a, at a almost of 100x uh, capacity to what we're used to today, you're right. It's, uh, it has the promise of being a game changer. No, no question. We'll have to teach our grandkids what the word buffering means. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, saw, I saw your tweet stream. You are the, maybe the most expensive tech support. Uh, I saw the... The last photo of you, uh, 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 I don't know who it was that you were showing how to follow someone on Twitter. Oh, I was showing my dad, my 93-year-old oh, father. Dad, yes. like, how do I follow AOC on Twitter? AOC, I that's like, right. I was that's like, all right, there you go, dad. The power oh, of social cool media. Dad, cool dad. That's very, very cool. So, so, so this is interesting, right? We see this convergence happening. We're all playing in the same sandbox. We're heading in this direction. Now, you've been both a chief digital officer and a chief marketing officer. Um, do we still need different roles? Um, do they still unique? Um, how does it happen inside organizations? Um, what's happening in, in that way? And, and even the CIO role as, as CDOs morph right. into CIOs as well. Where do you see all this uh, headed? Three separate roles, combined roles, one big role? I'm gonna give you the wholly unsatisfying answer of it depends. Organizations have such different needs. So before I would say like, well, if you're behind on digital, you need a CDO, um, but otherwise it's like a chief electricity officer. But then you see organizations like Salesforce, which is native digital, and then IBM, which is certainly heavily digital, and they have large and impactful CDO offices. So I think it depends on how the role is crafted. It can be a combination of you know, implementation, public thought leadership, and culture wrangling, which is arguably the most important part. Um, but I think the, the merging around, I think when the digital piece goes far beyond marketing and customer experience, is when you need to have both. But the one thing that's you know an absolute sine qua non for all these roles is good and tight collaboration. So I think unless you're CIO and the CDO, and again we're back to the you know the messiness, right? There's going to be areas of overlap. Um, but I may have said in the last uh, you know disrupt TV is nothing drives collaboration like an exchange of hostages, right? So find ways for your teams to work together and on each other's projects, and that can really fuel productive collaboration. I mean, we have seen that. One of our clients in a large airline, the CDO displaced the CIO, and, and they kicked them out. And now the CDO is about to get kicked out in the next few weeks. And you can see some weird tensions as, as boards and organizations trying to figure out what, what, what makes sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, we had 
we talked to Kim Stevenson when she was CIO at Intel, and she said, you know, my mindset is there are no IT projects, there are only business projects. And so, and the language of business is finance. So at the end of the day, if you're a technologist or a digital transformation agent, you need to really build your strategy and investment thesis and, and enablement on, on business objectives and goals and uh, make sure there's a strong tie there. And I, I, I tend to agree with her uh, when it comes and to can that. Can I pop back to something that Ray said for a second when he said boards? And I think that word is really important. I think a huge risk factor, whether you're a large public corporation, a small private or a large not-for-profit, is that sort of the digital understanding of your boards. And I think where you see those deltas is often where you see problems on the C-suite. And I think the, there's a lot of reluctance to bring on people with different kinds of expertise. You know, people are always doing what they've always done, so they're always getting what they've always got, right? And I think that's a big challenge that when you're missing that level of expertise, you may be measuring for the wrong thing. Sure. So as a board member serving several institutions, is AI now a boardroom discussion? Uh, and should it be? Because whether it was Davos or I attended the largest, Ray and I were at the largest retail conference, uh, NRF in New York, um, a couple of weeks ago. And certainly every vendor, every you know, talk, uh, uh, thought leadership track reference the use of AI in order to compete and win. So are there discussions at the boardroom level in terms of what is, to the CEO, asking the CEO and team, what is your AI strategy? When do we, are the products and services we're bringing to market AI enabled and, and, and so on and so forth? I, mean, I think that falls under the same umbrella of having a technologically aware and engaged board. Uh, you know, my favorite, how to be a successful board member is about, you know, noses, not fingers, right? You want to have your nose in the business. You don't want to have your hands in the business. So you're not necessarily saying like, show me exactly where AI resides in your marketing stack and allow me to call four of my friends and decide if that's the right place. That's not a good board member. But really to be asking the right questions. And I do think in the spirit of reverse mentorship, I think it's important for CEOs and organizations to think about how am I training my board? You may have brought in your board for their retail depth of experience for their experience you know uh doing large ipos for their investment networks there are many reasons you select board members so perhaps it's time for boards as we live in an era of continuous learning to take it upon themselves to educate themselves and you know i could absolutely see space for a small company if anyone looking for a business idea out there um you know to really educate boards high level people who aren't used to sitting in the classroom and aren't going to do your you know online training um but really help them get up to speed so they can be the most effective board members they can be. That's excellent. Oh yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. And, and I was gonna say that that board training is so missing. That's why a lot of people think digital is like a checklist box project. People are like, oh, that's it. You know, we've done digital already. What do we do next? It's like, no, dude, <laughs> we're, we're, we're just in the middle of this. This is an ongoing project. And so, so we definitely have got to figure out a way to get this, uh, this, this training in place because a lot of folks are missing this. Now, you touched upon AI, which is really important, right? Artificial intelligence. How do you think that's going to impact uh, the future of marketing and, and digital commerce? My favorite quotes is, you know, the Hemingway one, how did you go bankrupt? Gradually and then suddenly, right? So I do think the advent of AI in your marketing stack will be just that, gradually and then suddenly. I think in 2019, you're going to see advanced AI capabilities, but they're going to be more under the hood and more invisible to you. I think that, you know, within each point solution in that stack, they're going to be increased AI fueled capabilities as they get more and more data and more and more able to do that. 
but you know, the, the her level, you know, we're, we're always talking about narrow AI, right? They either does these very specific things. Um, does, does your marketer, you know, CMO need a full-time AI person? I would argue in most cases, no, you know, um, but you know, as, as you begin to scale, that may be more of a norm, but I think it's more about how do you, how do you employ whether it's machine learning or AI or, and I will say like, if I had to choose, you know, the biggest problem is still the data. Yeah. Having the right data, cleaning your data, maintaining your data, keeping it accessible, you know, to be, I think everyone should be thinking if I were a marketer, you know, at a large CPG thinking about how to, how am I ready for AI? Um, there may be something about thinking about what specialists or what, you know, what are my vendors bringing in the space is good due diligence, but is my data ready for AI is perhaps the most salient question. Yeah, that's, that's terrific advice. Um, we had Mayor Gupta, who is the vice president of growth. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he is. He's, he's, he's one of my, uh, one of my favorite guests. And, uh, as he was describing his role, I thought, man, this is all the stuff that a good CMO should be doing. So I feel like growth, it, it maybe, maybe it should be the CGO, chief growth officer. Uh, but what, what advice do you have for maybe new CMOs um, or even, even tenured CMOs, exist, you know, experienced CMOs in terms of lessons learned and things that they should focus um, in order to help their companies not only grow awareness and advocacy, but revenue? So I think I, I take sort of a combination approach. One thing is I do, maybe it's my higher ed, you know, stint, um, but I do believe there's amazing research out of centers and academic institutions, which are great, not for dictating your production path, but absolutely for thinking about what are the emerging trends to watch for and what is the unforeseen complexity around those trends, mm. you know, and there may be sources there that are of interest and there are a lot of interesting convenings, which can be a great way for leader to get up and out and think differently about solving a problem. Second is maintaining a strong network of practitioners that from everywhere, you know, when I think of my own network, it's everyone from large management consultancies to tiny digital product studios and really focusing on the diversity of that network. I mean, the beginning of the year is a good time, although we're already in February, to think about, you know, the health of your network. Uh, am I, you know, am I replicating an echo chamber? Am I only working with smart, you know, digital and, you know, marketing strategists based in New York? Like, how do you think about the diversity of that network? That's diversity of age and diversity of gender and diversity of experience and diversity of ethnicity. And thinking about what are the kind of perspectives that network will bring you and ideas to bring you. I think there are even tools to say, like, are you following all the same people on Twitter? What does that look like? Um, and finally, you know, just conducting a lot of experiments. I think you got to learn by doing. I think the days of PowerPointing your way through an executive position are, you know, hopefully on the wane. And really thinking about what are the things you learn from experiments in digital transformation within your own shop, shops you're working with. And then how do you learn from each one to spot the hallmarks of what's real digital change versus what I like to call digital theater, right? Just, you know, you have all the window dressing, you got, you've got the whiteboard, you got the idea paint on the wall, you, you say the word scrum a lot, there's post-its everywhere, but in fact, you know, are, are the ways people behave and work together changing? Darn, and the post-its are all the same color. How did that happen? That was <laughs> <laughs> well, we are live here with Perry Hewitt, digital strategist and board member. More importantly, one of the first CDOs in the world. And you can follow her and her insights at Perry Hewitt, P-E-R-R-Y-H-E-W-I-T-T. -T. Thank you for being on the show again. And uh, you were last on the show in episode 47 on February 3rd last year. So thanks again for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. You're terrific. Thank you so much. Uh, wow. Yeah. 
we could talk to Perry for an hour. He's awesome. Uh, I did. We had this like hour lunch that became like a two and a half hour lunch. It was like probably the, uh, some of the best conversations I've had in a while. So that's awesome. And I was in New York. I wish I knew. I would have. I would have left the conference and joined you. But uh, I'm glad she's on our show, and we hope that Perry will come to future shows as well. And um, you know, it's 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 tough being a CDO and CMO, uh, regardless of the sector. And uh, you have to have the business acumen. You have to have the technology chops. And you also have to be a connector and someone that can inspire others. And what a perfect segue for our next guest because you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's our uh, pleasure to have Miguel Gamino, Executive Vice President, Global Cities at MasterCard, joining us on Disrupt TV. Uh, <laughs> shameless plug, shameless plug. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, Miguel, in his role, Miguel leads MasterCard's digital activities with cities and the City Possible platform, forming public-private partnerships that drive civic efficiency, inclusiveness, equality, and ultimately better quality of life. Uh, prior to joining MasterCard, Miguel served as the Chief Technology Officer for a small city, New York City. Yeah. <laughs> Miguel pioneered civic en engagement and innovation platform for New York City and stood as a voice of leadership and tech policy, ensuring technology helped New York City become the fairest big city in America strengthening the city of 8.6 million residents. You know, these are country-size uh, responsibilities <laughs> that Miguel had. Uh, Miguel's leadership in New York translated to a broad and complex portfolio product infrastructure, digital and visionary initiatives, including broadband for all New Yorkers, smart city and IoT, Internet of Things programs, and a comprehensive digital strategy that improved government services. Prior to that, uh, he was the CIO for you know, the epicenter of innovation uh, in city and county of San Francisco and the CIO of the city of El Paso. He's also the founder uh, of the Council of Global City CIOs, incredible thought leader and must follow on Twitter at M-I-G-U-E-L-G-A-M-I-N-O. Welcome back, Miguel, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> by the way, I had to cut your bio short by like 8%. You've done so I'm much. It's ridiculous. I, I, I gotta have another car. Like we should, like we should send you like a two sentence one. I don't know. Where, I don't know what. Can't, Paula, you're you're so hard. resourceful. I don't know where you find all this stuff about me. Come on, man. I gotta tell you, you sneakerhead, sneakerhead. Every time I read your bio, I feel bad about myself. Anyway, that's awesome. You gotta run for president. That's all I have to say. <laughs> that for your next big we'll, we'll take that for the next one yeah but <laughs> yeah when you do announce make sure you announce on disruptive not Stephen colbert show or you know somewhere fancy let's do it true on true true millennial style you know <laughs> <laughs> so well hey you know you've been a lot of conversations around cities right and we know i mean we look at the pew research studies cities urban areas are growing out at like the fastest rates you look around the world it's the same thing and there are lots of challenges facing cities not just in the u.s but also globally uh, where do you see those challenges and and what, what do you think is actually happening in those big shifts well you know listen a lot of talk about urbanization i think the big picture here is that the trajectory you know looks like that and maybe like this but it's certainly not like that. And so I think, you know, uh, all of the pressures that we're seeing exist in urban centers today uh, are only going to be exacerbated. And those pressures are, you know, uh, stress on infrastructure that, 
you know, might not be able to keep up with the, the increase in capacity demands and those sorts of things. The user experience uh, might not be kept up with all the time is a, probably a gentle way to say it. Um, and if you say to, to people faced with those challenges, I'm going to add, you know, uh, orders of magnitude. I'm going to, I'm going to add an entire city's worth of people to that problem statement every month and every year, then, you know, put that in the, in the private sector consumer kind of products uh, context and those product managers and marketers, et cetera, would just, you know, uh, fall over. Right. And that's the reality of what cities are faced with. Now, I argue that they also possess a superpower that the private sector doesn't always enjoy. Sometimes the private sector does. I think we're an example of that, truthfully, at MasterCard. But, but oftentimes, the private sector doesn't enjoy this ability to, to openly collaborate and share the way that, that the public sector can, and, and most specifically cities. Um, I have many multi multiple personal experiences where, um, because of my investment, sometimes just frankly personally, in relationships with other CIOs or CTOs around the world, we were able to, to help each other accelerate that progress. Um, but that's, that's a huge advantage that, that cities uh, need to really leverage in order to keep, keep up or catch up um, with you know, the demands that they're, that they're facing. It's, it's a you know, 55 or so percent, they say, of, of the human population lives in urban centers today. And the UN numbers say that that's gonna be 70% by 2050, but some, you know, depending on how effective you are with, with the Google, uh, sometimes some people are saying that might be 80%. Uh, so, so the point is, again, the trajectory is undis you know, undisputable. The level of it, that the pitch of it might be, but the, but the direction of it is not. The other thing I think that's really important that, that exists in city centers, um, both problem and opportunity, is it's where the, the majority, 70% of global CO2 emissions come from cities. 80% of the, of the world's GDP comes from cities. So when you put that together, it's where all the people are, it's where the most important problems exist, and it's where all of the, the resources are generated. So you put those things together, um, uh, you know, urban centers uh, are getting a lot of attention for very good reason, because that's where we can you know, give mo the most people an inclusive opportunity to prosperity. It's where we can have the largest positive impact on things like uh, climate change and uh, immigration policy and these big global, you know, nation state issues can, can largely be uh, impacted uh, uh, quickly in cities. And that's where, you know, uh, businesses are thriving and growing and forming and 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 uh, and developing, you know, um, economic activity. So, you know, that's why I'm I've been super excited about cities for many years now. As you guys have, uh, uh, as Vala had read at length. Um, but that's it's because it's where the people are. It's where the it's where the heart is. But it's also where the the opportunity exists. So those same challenges that you're talking about, whether it's circulation and transport, uh, housing, uh, environmental, public safety, are all unique opportunities for innovation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, listen, I think um, it's also where you have the ability to make impact at scale, right? You talk about um, uh, uh, transforming mobility services. You do that in a place like New York City, and you're literally uh, addressing the lives of millions of people, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and it's also where some of the challenges exist at scale. Um, and so this is, you know, some of these challenges, um, it's important to note, don't, don't discriminate necessarily all the time between developed markets and emerging markets. So there are mobility challenges in emerging markets. I can tell you from personal experience this very morning that there are mobility challenges in New York City that argue, you know, some people would say the capital of the world. Um, and so there are, there are a million people here to, to Vala's um, point about my, my previous experiences in New York. There are a million people here who are unconnected or underconnected to the internet who don't have the, maybe the ability to join us in this very conversation or participate in some levels of, of, of uh, important steps of, of the democratic process. And so those, those are issues that exist in New York city um, and they exist in emerging markets too. And so I think, What's really what I'm really uh, blessed with and excited about at, at MasterCard and and with City Possible is we're very truly a global company in every corner uh, of of the world and um, having really important conversations in all of those different scenarios and and City Possible is a is now already a collection of cities that represent um, every continent but also represent the different demographics we have. We have big cities that have joined us like Dubai um, and we have, you know, uh, smaller cities that in the U.S. that have joined us like Altamonte Springs, uh, Florida and, and, lot, and everything in between. A whole list of cities that represent those different opportunities and problem statements uh, and working together is how we're going to make meaningful progress for everybody. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm going to India in a couple of weeks to speak at a conference uh, every second three new people in India connect to the internet for the first time. So in this hour, uh, 3,600 seconds that we're gonna to be together, almost 10,000 people in India are gonna to connect to the internet for the first time. I was born in the 70s. I think there were only three mega cities, population 10 million or more, Mexico, Tokyo, and New York. In my lifetime, there'll be 50 mega cities. So yeah. I said, this exponential growth, not just in population, but connectivity, is is it's 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 mind-numbing <laughs> to be honest with you yeah 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 i mean how do you build resiliency in this explosive arena of, of growth and connectivity i mean that's that's the the answer is partnerships right we need the days of going it alone i'm sorry to say are over right uh cities is that why you joined mastercard because when you were in san francisco you were with the best and brightest technologies in the world when you were in new york while you were in the capital of the world. And so I'm wondering, is, is, is that what drew you to MasterCard? Because you knew you needed to be with a global iconic brand that actually brought people together? Yeah, so it was the global iconic brand that, and, and, the, and the nature of, that, of the relationship that that brand has with people. Mm -hmm. um, it was also that they, the, the company had already identified the essence of the approach that, that resonated with me that was, that was the same thing I was all, that it was the same thing you, you, you and I, we were talking about when I was on this show last and I was still the CTO of New York City. Um, so the belief system was not compromised. In fact, it was aligned. Um, you know, we, we talk about doing well by doing good and, and we don't just talk about it. I can tell you, you know, every leadership meeting, every interaction with, with our CEO and our executive leadership, um, it's not just a, a banner on a wall. In fact, it's the, the, it's the anti-banner on the wall. It's we're going to live it and we're going to breathe it and we're going to represent it um, in everything we do. And that's, you know, that underlying culture was, was very important to me. 
Um, and then the truth is that the organization um, and the leadership has given me a lot of latitude to take what was um, a, a vision that we had in common and then put, you know, put the, the, the details behind it, the strategy and the path forward behind it um, that frankly I'm built, I tell people I'm building the program I wish existed when I was on the other side of the table. And um, I think that's resonating and we've got, you know, we, we announced that we had 16 cities already join City Possible in November when we were at uh, a Smart Cities conference. Um, and because I always, I always give you guys a little bit of scoop, we haven't made another announcement yet, so they'll remain unnamed for now, but we're, uh, we're now over 20 cities that have joined City Possible. So, in, in, and that was over the holidays, so things were slow, you know? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I might be able to help with you. <laughs> but the reason, but the reason for that is it's be, it's because it it because it's authentically um, valuable, right? And it's we're taking a responsible approach. We are um, aligned with the goals and and needs of cities because truthfully, if we help all those people that you talked about that are joining the internet by the minute, um, or people who are all these millions of people who are migrating to urban centers, if we help mayors do what every mayor in the world is trying to do, which is make their city better, happier, friendlier, more prosperous, and basically improve the lives of the people who live there, if we help them do that, then you know our, our core business stands to benefit organically without, without any kind of inauthentic alignment, right? And so I think that's really, really important and very special about our organization and our our role in the ecosystem that we're creating. That's amazing. You know, given your background and also your network, what's the role of tech companies uh, in working with cities uh, and communities? You know, well, it's, it's, it's to continue the, dis the dialogue we just talked about that there's, if we're going to, to, to catch up and keep up with this, this impressive demand, it's going to take a lot of creativity. I think technology is a tool um, th that can help continue that create that creative arc that will allow cities to, to keep up or catch up. Um, that is not a new phenomenon. It's the format of technology that is new, but the concept of, of innovation or creativity wasn't born with the millennials, right? I mean, cities have been getting smarter or making progress in serving their people since their inception, since they were born, right? Um, it's just in the modern era that we've tagged it with these certain names. So the technology companies of today, as we call them, have arguably the same role that industrial companies or any other, any other organization had in previous eras or generations, which is to make meaningful contribution to the progress of, of cities and the, and the people that, that cities serve. That, Help, have, help cities become the place of opportunity and prosperity that, that people expect them to be um, um, when they move there, when they're, when they're migrating to these urban centers. Um, nice move, Ray. I like that. I, I got to get this green screen. Look at, behind me. I'm so, I'm in New York City. I should have like the, the, the actual skyline behind me. And here I am with a whiteboard. I got, hey, I'm celebrating the rainbow room. You know, you can't take the scientist engineer out of you, no matter where you go. So, so Miguel, you know, so I, I think about um, I think about tech company as Ray just mentioned. How can they play a role? I think a company like Amazon, who's going to open up about three thousand brick and mortar retail stores, but they but they brought these design 
thinkers, uh, designers into the mix where they said, we want continuous flow. We recognize that anytime you stop, you degradate the experience of a buyer, a shopper. So the combination of machine learning, computer visioning, sensors, AI, uh, smart devices, they've created the ability for you to have no checkout lines. And this can where you walk in and you walk to make sure that you just hand open when you are technologies that you're excited about where you can apply that continuous flow and motion into the as being the north star for the city experience for the folks that live and work in the city but also people that come in and out of cities so i think listen I, i'm gonna i'm gonna take the opportunity the the to make a comment before i answer the question which is i think all of that's really exciting and listen the the three of us and the 310 people we have that are with us or or however many thousands probably um i think we all need to we're all excited about it because we understand it um we most of us probably live in a certain scenario where we um uh, the pathway to kind of impact or benefit is a certain thing. Long way of saying, I think we'd need to make sure that our excitement for technology is centered on the impact that it can have on people um, and, and making sure that that impact is in, is an inclusive one. And I think, so I think before I get real excited about a, a seamless shopping experience, um, how do we make sure that those advancements find their way to other use cases that can help, lots of different scenarios. And, and I, I don't say that, honestly, I don't say that to be a bleeding heart. I say that to, to really feel like that's an opportunity and a potential risk is we, we let's, let's make sure technology serves uh, people in an inclusive way. So let the technology follow, um, not necessarily lead the, the discussion. All, all that to say though, I think those innovations are, are real and have the potential to really serve people equitably and inclusively. And I'm, I am really excited about, you know, some of the new way of thinking around mobility and, you know, the idea of multimodal mobility and could people really, I think to your analogy of the, the Amazon store, if we can create this seamless flow um, between modes of transit, then I think we can unlock the potential of more efficient use of those modes in an end-to-end -end journey. Not to get too, too you know, we geeked out on it, but a big, huge part of that is the, the user experience. Maybe the, the primary issue is the user experience. People have an experience that they'll tolerate um, and hopefully even enjoy when they go from riding a bike or a scooter transitioning to a subway ride, transitioning to maybe a ride share or an automobile or another bike or whatever, like what's that going to feel like? And if we can make it feel good enough right. and then people will do it. And if we don't, then they won't. Right. So I think to, to, to pull your question into my earlier point about having tech serve people, if we take that lens on it and we say we can use this technology to increase the user, the improve the user experience to, to accomplish this end goal, then I think we're hitting home runs, right? Um, at worst case, we're hitting triples, but, but, but at least we're really serving a, a much wider audience and accomplishing goals that impact positively 
you know, sustainability goals and all kinds, you start like checking off lots of boxes on the list when you think about it holistically, holistically. So putting people at the center of that conversation and letting that lead the problem identification and definition is, is super important, I think. Brilliant response. I tell you, if you ran for president, I know you get two votes right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Miguel. I'll tell, hey, listen, I'll tell the exploratory committee, I got two. <laughs> there's, the scoop, there's the scoop that we're looking for. Oh, yeah. There we go. This just made the show. No, talking about mobility, but not the mobility you're thinking about. Here with Miguel Camino, he's talking about mobility in terms of cities, um, making that breaking down the friction it takes for people to get from point A to point B, making it a lot easier for folks. I'm thinking about the global challenges facing cities here with, we are here with Miguel Gamino, Executive Vice President of Global Cities at MasterCard. You can follow him at M-I-G-U-E-L-G-A-M-I-N-O. You've been on the show twice. Thank you for being here again. Look at that. Smartest um, people we know. Thank you so much, Miguel. Thank you. We'll catch Thank you later. You Thank you. Always a blast. Thank you, sir. He is, uh, he is, he's an amazing, uh, amazing guy. And I can't, you know, I hope, I, 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 I hope uh, his vision comes to life. And I have no doubt it will. He's a, uh, he's a big thinker, but more importantly, big doer. When I, when we have a chance to connect with him at conferences, uh, he's always, uh, you know, connecting people and not finding ways to solve uh, complex problems. And of course, uh, our final guest, this is, uh, this is the cleanup hitter slot where we bring the best and brightest to wrap it all for us. We have John Reed, co-founder at Diginomica. Uh, John uh, examines the digital enterprise from the vantage point of real world use cases. He is a, a blogger, an analyst. He writes, he has incredible video cast on enterprise trends. He's an advocate for media over marketing. Uh, and he sees Diginomica as a chance to disrupt tech media with a BS wary enterprise user in mind. That's why the use cases are key <laughs> to, to his, 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 his strategy. Uh, you can reach him on Twitter at J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome back, John Reed, one of our favorite guests and our, and our viewers' favorite guests back on Disrupt TV. Welcome. What's up, guys? Congratulations <laughs> on your three years. I've got some surprises for you. The first one is this, your gift of leather. <laughs> Sean, said, did you think you could last three years when you heard disruptive you go live three years ago? Were you well <laughs> let's put it I'll put it to you this way. The last time I saw the both of you, Ray was juggling vendor parties like a world class gymnast <laughs> and you were live streaming a rave. So does that answer your question? People have no idea how cool we are when we're not on Disrupt TV. <laughs> we were getting hand-cut steaks. That's all I remember. I, the other piece yeah. was a blur. This leather jacket's really uncomfortable. Hang on, I'm going to get out. Yeah, yeah. And if I recall correctly, all three of us crashed that party you're talking about. Anyway, it's the pop accounts there. <laughs> we weren't even invited to that party. I was actually yeah, a yeah. We all we'll crashed that party. So that we makes talk about who hosted that party. Let's talk about was, That was really funny because they were like, any VIPs in line? And Vala and I were standing there. I look at Vala. I'm like, you're not a friggin' VIP. <laughs> anyway, back back to the real world here. Um, I know. We had to give them our business cards and get registered. So you, guys <laughs> had, you guys had some fantastic guests, by the way. Um, I just made a note of a couple of amazing quotes that I just wanted to share from the episode so far. Starting with you, Ray, when you said, I kind of missed the days of Waterfall. That's a real keeper. Uh, <laughs> That's an unprediction candidate. 
<laughs> yeah, and and Perry said nothing drives collaboration like an exchange of hostages. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> and and then Miguel talked about how because you know we talk about these topics and these like next gen ways. He's like when you transform mobility services, you change the lives of millions of people and all the people that are unconnected and disconnected from these conversations and and how benefit businesses can benefit you know by by organically connecting in a more inclusive way and I thought that was really really powerful so we have a lot to live up to there I don't know I feel suddenly a obligation to say something useful Ray, Ray why don't we have Tom Reed recap all our shows like why is it we get the permanent guest I don't understand it. anyway those are your those are your takeaways now we can pretty much chill all right, we're done. Let's go. Uh, no, yeah. let's let's talk about TechLash and Davos. How about that? Oh, you Davos. Davos. Yes. Davos, since you made a big point about that from Holger. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, well. Uh, I I mean, Ray, you were there. I wasn't, so you're probably better equipped to talk about this. But the one of the huge themes coming out of the World Economic Forum is this sense of the TechLash. <clears throat> And, and, you know, I guess what you could say about that is that maybe that, that tech lash sort of exacerbates the digital skills gap that they've been talking about in, in Davos for years. And, you know, the, the tech lash I said is kerosene on the fire of the digital divide. And, you know, it, what it really is, is it's about like, is there a governance model that can address this erosion of privacy and trust, right? That's really at the core of it is, is there a way to address this? And if so, how? And, and, I, and I think, you know, the Facebook paradox is a really interesting thing to talk about because it, it seems like just about every day there's some horrid news coming out of Facebook. Like I think it was just a day or two ago was about, uh, I saw a headline, Facebook paying teens to spy on themselves or whatever, uh, you know, cl real classy stuff. Um, and, that, and that's just a sample. And yet Facebook comes out with this massive earnings report, right? And 2.3 you know, billion. Right. And, and so, so, so to me, I have to wonder a little bit about like how this all plays out, like, in terms of this is a serious issue, but if, if consumers aren't like vigilant around this and don't vote with their eyeballs and their wallets, then what's really going to change? So I think it's it's interesting, and I think that's one of the things to come out of Davos is these super important conversations. And Ray, you can probably speak to this because you're there, but conversations that are really really hard to then take forward. <laughs> you know, like like what do we do about that now? You know. Um, no, there's a great point, right? And, and I think what we realized, and, and you probably saw that on the event report we had for Davos, is that, you know, the, the social contract's broken, right? It used to be, if you do this, do it really well, these are the rules, right? It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you do, you do this, you'll get this reward, and this is the path, right? And, and we'll ensure that, you know, something good comes out of it. And the problem is the politicians have no clue what the path are. The world leaders are completely confused. And so everybody is out there dangling candy at people that doesn't work. Right, and and pretty soon we're, we're we're basically going after all these little groups. Right, we're gonna go after people with purple hair and are ambidextrous. Right, and we're gonna give them a special benefit. Right, and pretty soon people are like everyone gets a benefit, but me. So now we're in this situation where like people completely have no trust of what's going on in the market, along with the fact that hey, this evil technology thing is coming after my jobs. What do we do now? Right, and and yeah. I think that is really what we're we're up against is because no vision. Uh, we've given away all the candy we can give away as politicians, and now what do we do? And and I think that's what the the fear is that that I got out of yeah. it. So one of the one of the writer one of our writers, Chris Middleton, he he wrote about IoT making IoT work for everyone from like Davos conversations. He said this thing I thought was really powerful. He said predicting patterns in weather systems, early stage cancers, or influenza influenza outbreaks is one thing. 
but predicting someone's potential to commit a crime is another, especially if organizations then use that data to deny them services, credit, or insurance. And I think, like, in a nutshell, that's what you're talking about, Ray, right? Is that the, the same technology that could potentially create all kinds of perhaps liberating factors in our lives is, is also has this undertow and we, we don't always know what we're opting into. And, and to me, one of the really cool things about GDPR, while you could make an argument that there's a lot of problems with it, it, it did force this conversation around like, uh, you know, and this is more to Europe than the US, but we're starting to see some reverberations. It's around like this notion that there is an opt-in way of doing business. And, and, and that, they're, that, that consumers do appreciate convenience, but they really do want to opt in in a transparent way. And like a 20 page term of service well, we've updated our term of service and you have to click on this thing if you want to get on their service. That's not opting in, right? Opting in is a much, much more concise and clear thing around, here's what you're going to get, here's what you're going to give, and do you want to do that or not? Right. I'm going to uh, shift the conversation to NRF, the largest retail conference in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Last time I, I saw you, John. Uh, it was my first NRF, so I didn't have really a, a, a relative point of view. I was impressed with what I saw. There were good thought leaders, good demonstrations and innovation use cases that I saw the three days I was there. What were some of the high points for you? And I know it was, you know, I don't know, your fifth, sixth, I don't know what the number of NRFs you've been to, but how has the retail industry changed its narrative and what they emphasize at NRF compared to previous years? Right. So uh, one, one really quick thing I'll say about that is that even if you're not interested in retail, these conversations are kind of transcending industries now because, you know, I went to a Chick-fil-A Chick presentation at NRF and it was, the whole theme was that all retailers are in the data business now. And so that pretty much carries over from industry. I mean, I try to take some videos of next gen stuff. Like uh, um, I have a little playlist of demo floor highlights and uh, I, I did one with Millie, the virtual assistant. I kind of got a crush on her. Uh, she's kind of a, like, I, I don't want to say the A word because I've got some A devices around, but she, you know, she, she helped me to shop for some sunglasses. Then I got a video with Marty the robot and Marty the robot's actually going to be appearing in a number of giant grocery stores across the U.S. So this is actually not hypothetical, but like a, a real robot that's going to be on the shop floor. Like when you're shopping in those stores, you're going to run into this like ginormous, like robot that's on this like huge base that you can't knock down and you know it, it's hardly what you would call like ai in some intelligent sense it, it it can identify spills but it can't even clean them up but the whole point is it can do some stuff and and so some of that is actually like becoming real and i think that was one difference is like seeing stuff like that that's actually being rolled out but to me i think if, if i wanted to capture it in a nutshell what i would say around retail in general and Ray published a fancy slide, uh, which I agreed and disagreed with. So Ray, you may have a comment, but my whole thing on retail is that at the heart of it, what's really interesting, and Vali, you were talking about reasons for optimism, is that personalization is actually delivering ROI for companies. Right. And, and behind personalization is some notion of AI. We can debate the definitions of that exactly, but behind that is some form of machine learning powered stuff that a human couldn't possibly do that has to do with you know, giving people preferences. And there's a lot of stats now coming out and I can share a few with them if you'd like uh, that, that really validate that. And I think what's interesting about that is what it shows is that even though most of us, the bad news is we still can't find the intelligent enterprise regardless of what vendors would tell us. It's not there yet, sorry. And, and we still can't really find the omni-channel. 
like any, you can break your, your, your customer experience with any brand, right? Don't, don't give me Amazon, try their call center. It's hell. Um, they, they don't have the omni-channel figured out either, but in the midst what of all center? that, what call center? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Wait till something breaks. You will be on the phone with someone halfway across the world. So, um, but anyhow, the, the point being that within all of that challenge, personalization is an example of something that is showing some proven ROI benefits. And, and that's really meaningful because we could spend a lot of time talking about next gen, whatever, but what's really relevant to retailers is how can I reach consumers in new ways? And how can I do that with Amazon breathing down my neck? Right. And, and so there's a lot of interesting stats at the show that kind of back that up, which I can share if you like. Yeah. Let's go start with some of those stats. You want I, mean, a few I think stats? You, okay. Yeah, I thought you did a great right. job with this. All right. Let's do some stats. Um, so, Vala, I know you're going to be really bummed that I'm quoting Salesforce. <laughs> Shameless plug for you. Uh, but it you're, took you're, 135 episodes for my company name to be brought up. So that's the, cool. There you go. Here we go, right? <laughs> uh, your, your VP product mar marketing, uh, Gordon Evans, told me that 26% of Salesforce Commerce Cloud holiday revenues could be attributed to AI-powered offering, which obviously the personalization is at the heart of that. That's, that's big. And... And that's, you're talking about millions of uh, visibility to millions of consumers. I just did a piece on Chewbacca, which was not an NRF, but at, at a show, Acumatica Cloud ERP following. I asked them if personalization was working. They said recommendations convert at a substantially higher rate than everything else on our site. Rec recommendations tend to convert substantially higher than browsing traffic. Prior to that, I talked to the CEO of Shoptelligence, which is another upstart retail vendor. And they're talking about when shoppers engage with their technology, they purchase an average of 66 plus percent more per transaction. Wow. Um, and, and so at the heart of that, right, is that, uh, and uh, another Salesforce thing, 75% of customers said they want to receive person, personalized offers, make it relevant to me. So at, at the heart of that is, is not just people spending more, it's, it's changing the definition of, of what, is, what is a successful relationship with your customer all about. And that was one of, I thought, the sneaky stories at NRF that didn't make Ray's slide. Nope. Um, but, is it, but is it at the end of the day, if you can give me back time, you will gain my loyalty and trust? I mean, at the end of the day, personalization is so I don't have to waste time looking at, you know, green and red jackets when I only wear blue and gray. So just get me to where I need to be quickly. Give me back some time. And for that, I will reward you future business. Yeah, that's a really big part of it. And, and one of the things that, that did go on to Ray's slide that I do totally agree with, and it wasn't a huge topic this year, but it's going to be big next year, is this notion of store transformation. And, and to your point, Vala, like we have to be a little careful here because uh, I started talking with someone about immersive store experiences. And someone was like, oh, come on, quit talking about experiences immersive experiences people just want to grab something and get out like the hell with your experiences and so it's like oh you're right i'm throwing buzzwords around and i got to be careful with that but the point is that the brands have an opportunity to to rethink what a store is all about and and it all depends on customers and being able to segment different customers as well and figure out what they want for, for to your point some of your customers might just want to pick up curbside and get the heck out yeah. Others might really enjoy a more casual experience where they can drop off kids at maybe a daycare center for an hour while they shop and let the kids go nuts and they can do what they want. Um, others might want a latte stand in a Walmart. You, you don't know. You have to figure that out. And, and, and that's the promise of data, but also the challenge because 
when you talk with most companies, they haven't totally figured that out yet. That's a, that's a much, much different experience than, than, than showing relevant offers on, a, on an e-commerce site. And the reason this is obviously developing urgency is that Amazon, Amazon owns a bunch of stores now and they're not messing around. And if you go into a Whole Foods, you, you're beginning to see what they're going to be doing with that. Right. And so retailers now have this other thing, which is like, they screwed up my e-commerce sales. You know, now they're going after my storefront sales and it's time to wake up. Um, and, and, and my biggest beef with Ray's slide, and I know Ray doesn't disagree with me on this, it just didn't make the cut for his retail trends highlights, is that employees are an integral part of this. And this is the real challenge that most retailers are facing, is how to create more engaged, thoughtful employees on the show floor. You try walking into these big box stores, you tell me what it's like for you. It, that, that, that's different than going into a high-end luxury retail, that's a whole different thing. So, but the exciting thing is that, is that a lot of companies are working on solving that problem. I think it's a difficult problem, so I don't want to sugarcoat it, but there's a lot of, like, it's basically all about putting smart technology in the hands of employees so they're on more equal footing with customers who are walking into the store with smart devices. Oh, they yeah. know exactly what they want, and, and they get so irritated at the disinterested employee who doesn't give a crap, and it's not being really the employee's <laughs> fault that they're not invested in a corporation that has invested so little in them. And, and it's yet talking about how great their customer experience is. Something's got to give. Yeah, agreed. I, I, I shop at Costco, Target, and some ethnic grocery store. I have no service. I mean, yeah. There's just no service on the floor. You're never going to get that. Uh, we, we have a couple of minutes left. I want to go to your own predictions for 2018. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Let's favorite thing that you do every year, and I'm going to just lead with my first, my favorite, and then ask you to share some of your favorites. Number okay. 10 on the own predictions list. In three consecutive conference keynotes, former athletes urge attendees to give their digital transformation projects a full 110%. Not <laughs> be outdone. Ray Wang urges us to raise our game to infinite percentage. <laughs> Absolutely. Infinite percent, man. Infinite <laughs> orchestration. Absolutely. Uh, uh, wait, that was my favorite. No, go ahead. By the way, are we on Fox News? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm surprised they haven't cut off our segment. Okay. So, you, every time I turn it on, Ray is talking about. No, the last one was CNBC with the Apple forecast. Ray, brilliant commentary. But anyway, we'll save that. Okay, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you my five favorites. Yes. Then I'm gonna give you one new one. Ooh. Not important that I made just for you guys. Okay. Infinite. Okay. So the five, the top five I picked are the first major 5G demo fails due to bandwidth limitations. Um, on keynote stage, on keynote yeah. stage. Yeah. Uh, Warford Town is officially called off as there wasn't anyone available to work on it. Shut down. <laughs> Oracle's Larry Ellison has an awkward moment when he receives an Amazon Prime Now package delivery during his open world keynote. By drone, by drone. By drone, right, yeah. Uh, a, a Gartner analyst gets fired for placing Gartner on the hype cycle. And... Uh, Vendor marketing teams are euphoric when they realize the problem of employee experience can be solved with circadian lighting. So, the, where can we find these? Where can we find these awesome predictions? Uh, Brian Summer and I do this every year. You can, if you do a search for unpredictions and Diginomica, they should. Be oh, um, I think we got like three years worth. And, and my special one for this, this one, I'm not sure if I can get this done for the fall, but I like being raising the bar. I send a robotic likeness to represent me at Constellation Connected Enterprise. <laughs> that's, that's my big goal. We'll, we'll, give you, we'll give you both of you a ticket. 
<laughs> so can I, by, so the can way, I, by the way, let's not end with that. There's also the new tech words of 2019. My yeah, yeah, yeah. Omniprepper. Wait, 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 I got. I'm going to give you a few of them here. Okay, you got it. <laughs> go, go. Of course, we got we got Omnicrapper, which got is blockchain. That, that's yeah. Omnicrapper <laughs> is when your customer experience breakdown as customers move from channel to channel. Um, so yeah, that returning that espresso machine was a real Omnicrapper. So that's how you can use that one. Then we've got then we've got fiscal experience, an enterprise software experience that will eventually show up on an invoice. Uh, <laughs> And then, and then we've got quantum consulting. I had that. I had that. The art of billing customers to assess their readiness potential for a quantum computing battle. They may or they may not, but you still get billed. Yeah. And then, of course, Ray, your favorite, we've got FAD, Facebook as a disservice. So th those are a few. There's a few more on the site, but I didn't want to run through them all because we have just a jump, minute jump, so anyway, jump, the, jump the snark, overpass, pass <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, cursive experience. That, must see. Must see this on Digitomica. This is a must-read blog, I got to tell you. <laughs> definitely look up John and his articles and look for Unpredictions 2019. And Brian S. Summer. So yeah, you're here with John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica. You can follow him at John, J-O-N-E-R-P. And more importantly, catch his witty remarks on Diginomica weekly, daily, and of course, when you see him live at events. So thanks a lot for being on the show, John. My pleasure, guys. I'll see you at a new rave soon. You got it. Go <laughs> you, John. Uh, what a fun third anniversary show here. This is freaking amazing. <laughs> it is, it is. And I want for all our audiences to recognize that uh, three years Disrupt TV has been on the air. Every year the Patriots have been to the Super Bowl. So I'm... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, we know what he'll be doing this weekend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as long as Disrupt TV is on the air, you can guarantee half the Super Bowl will be represented from New England. And, uh, well, quick programming notes on my end. Uh, you know, a, a big warm thank you to Alan Lepofsky. He's been with us for seven years. He's about to join your world, Vala, in a few weeks. So uh, I think he's put his post out there. And so uh, shout outs to him. And we also have a brand new analyst to join us, one of the top CIO followers in healthcare. David Chow has joined us. Uh, he'll be helping healthcare more about that in a little bit. So what do we have? Episode 136, kicking off episode two for season yeah, three. It's amazing. We have uh, Julia Taylor Kennedy, Executive Vice President at Center for Talent Innovation. She's an author, brilliant thought leader. We're gonna have her on our show. We have Steve Murphy, Chief Executive Officer at Epicor. He's gonna join us next week. And of course we have one of our top analysts and favorites uh, who teaches us how to pronounce correctly, Davos. Uh, <laughs> Mueller, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Speaking of Constellation Research, I'm incredibly excited for Constellation Research's ability to recruit what I would um, argue the top healthcare CIOs in the world. Um, I saw the press release today. I'm incredibly excited to work more with him, David Chow. Um, I, you know, I, I named him, I believe, top five uh, most social CIOs in the world in a Huffington Post article a couple of years ago. And that was just a couple of years ago. And his digital footprint and influence has grown uh, uh, orders of magnitude in the years that I've known him. So congratulations. And yes, we're incredibly excited to welcome uh, Alan to our Ohana. Uh, closing remarks, uh, uh, Ray, on episode 135 and our three-year anniversary show. Well, check out the quantum background. That's what we got in the back. Uh, this has been an awesome three years. We got more to go. 
Fala, this is going to be awesome as we take uh, Disrupt TV show on the road. And, and dude, thanks for being an awesome friend, awesome business partner. And of course, this has been great. So thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.